Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on a Talk Radio. Obviously, we are once more uh, into the breach, dear friends. It is, of course, the table for two in the European capital of Brussels, where Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen will break bread and possibly a few mussel shells in an effort to do something that hasn't been possible for the last four years. And that is, of course, a deal to leave the European Union. Nigel Farage has already tweeted this morning uh, that coming up with some kind of partnership arrangement is not something you do when you're leaving something. It's something that you do uh, when you're joining something. Isn't that the case? 03444991000. There will be much huffing and puffing, much shaking of the head and wagging of the finger. And hopefully uh, there will be, of course, the Prime Minister leaving with his dignity intact before the Armagnacs are served. The bottom line, of course, is what happens after this. What does he actually do? 03444991000. We've got Prime Minister's questions for you before he jumps on the plane. Sir Keir Starmer will of course be zooming in, but what will he have to offer? We'll be checking in with our political correspondent Charlotte Ivers. Up first though, it's consultant urologist Wakar Rashid on the rollout of the COVID vaccine, the threat of upgrading London to tier three and the numbers game with data from the Office for National Statistics. Even Robert Peston yesterday started questioning whether or not the government was actually using the wrong kind of of data to get everything sorted out. And if you've got relatives in a care home, what are you being told? We've been uh, told that the government are saying you can roll out visits and vaccines before Christmas. So if you haven't seen your elderly relatives, you will be able to see them soon. We want to know whether that's actually true and we want you to tell us what is happening in the real world. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later, we're joined by TV presenter and historian Neil Oliver, uh, who has very nearly reached the end of his tether with the COVID rules and also the rule of law coming from the increasingly power mad SNP administration in Holyrood, led of course by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. And we'll examine the broadcasting landscape after Ofcom suggested that taxpayers' money may be hijacked to pay for public service shows on platforms like Netflix. I look forward to being handed a million quid to present this show, the home of common sense brought to you by the people of the United Kingdom. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Even as we speak, the news is breaking, of course. There's always news breaking everywhere that we uh, we go here uh, on the Independent Republic because news tends to break between the hours of 10 and 1. Uh, we will be doing PMQs coming up a little bit later on, but the Independent is amongst other news outlets, which is currently doing a story saying people who suffer from significant allergic reactions should not take the Pfizer vaccine, according to UK regulators. Apparently, a couple of people who work for the NHS uh, were given the vaccine yesterday and have had 
an allergic reaction. I don't think that should cause anyone to have any sort of massive meltdown. It shouldn't be any cause for massive alarm. But let's talk to Wakar Rashid and find out what's going on. Wakar, a very good morning to you. Hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Uh, obviously, we were going to talk about the vaccine anyway. We might as well kick off with this breaking story. I don't know whether you've seen <laughs> yeah. it. Um, I mean, this is probably par for the course for a vaccine scenario, isn't it? Yeah, I, I've just literally heard it. But yes, it can happen with any vaccine. I think uh, we, we clearly need more detail as to the extent of the vac- uh, the allergic reaction because it could just range from a, a simple rash to a full-blown what's called anaphylaxis, which could be yes. life-threatening. So we need more detail in the numbers. I think the one point that it raises to me, though, uh, which is something I was a little bit concerned about, was the talk of non-medically trained people uh, being given uh, uh, the opportunity to give vaccinations to to us with what seemed like fairly rudimentary training. And I think it just shows to me the importance of having medically trained people. It doesn't have to be doctors or uh, experienced nurses, but the medically trained people who uh, um, have got experience in giving vaccines to be giving this vaccine uh, because these things can happen. They happen with, uh, potentially can happen rarely with all, all, all vaccines. Yeah, I mean, their description <laughs> is that people with what they call significant allergic reactions yeah. should avoid taking it. What does that actually mean? I mean, what is a significant allergic reaction? Presumably it's not somebody who, you know, breaks out in uh, a rash when they eat a strawberry or something. I mean, uh, that, that is right. It, it, it's, it's very, very... Uh, I think we need clarity as, as to uh, the uh, ingredients uh, and so that if people have got a pre-existing allergy to anything in the ingredients, then that obviously would be a, what we call a contraindication, that we wouldn't uh, contemplate giving them that. Um, otherwise, there's a range, really. I mean, you've got people who have got things like nut allergies and... Uh, uh, other sort of dietary allergies mm. and then you've got people who've got genuine sort of medical uh, not saying that those things aren't medical but additional medical diagnosis in the makeup of how their uh, immune system uh, is made up and challenged by other non-dietary things mm. so it's a huge range and so really uh, we do need greater clarity i guess what has been said by the regulators here is that if you have some sort of significant history that could be in that uh, region then to hold off taking the vaccine until right. we have more I mean, what's what's your view? I mean, this is a bit of a random question. You probably weren't expecting me to ask you, but what, what's your view, uh, Dr. Wakar, on the uh, uh, the issue of sort of nut allergies and that kind of thing? Because a lot of people say now um, that when I was growing up, I didn't go to school with anyone, I don't think, that had a nut allergy. Yes. I didn't know anyone that was allergic to anything in a major way, particularly food-wise. However, now my children know people who have got nut allergies, and yes. I just wonder what your view is on why that's seemingly more common now. Um, so I'm obviously I'm not uh, an expert on um, on this area, but I think there's the, the thought and it's a wider cross it cross cuts other areas of mm. other conditions that have increased in um, in incidence uh, over recent years and how we live our lives differently uh, in the last sort of however many decades compared to um, you know going back to the um, pre-war and, and immediately post-war and much more different in terms of diet and much more different in terms of the exposure we give our children as they get older uh, as they're growing up in terms of uh, exposure to the outdoors and and, and things that um, challenge their immune system and I guess it goes back to 
the issue we're dealing with here is that our immune systems do need to be challenged. That's how they mature and grow and, and protect us as we become adulthood. And that challenging happens in early life. And our immune systems are incredibly powerful and incredibly adaptive in childhood. And that's and they they are exposed to a huge or should be exposed to a huge repertoire of challenges so that they can understand what's harmful and what isn't harmful and mature mm. and then protect us as we go on in life. Right. Now, as we speak, uh, Dr. Wekar, uh, Professor Chris Whitty is appearing before a parliamentary committee. He's talking about bringing a portfolio of three or possibly four vaccines uh, into the mix by sort of the middle of 2021. There was talk yesterday uh, of a possible sort of mix and match scenario going on. Um, as far as this rollout is concerned, it seems to have been a pretty successful day yesterday, doesn't it? I think it's it's encouraging uh, uh, because there's significant logistics behind uh, this vaccine with uh, needing to be tra- uh, travelled at, at minus 77 degrees, I think it is. So uh, logistically, that's it's a big challenge. And uh, a lot of our hospitals are old buildings. I, I know firsthand they're old buildings. They're... Uh, you know they're not in the best of shape mm. and uh, having, having to sort of undertake a huge logistical project with this cold chain transfer and inviting large numbers of people and to be able to also get it uh, out mm. into the community is, is going to be very challenging so you know it's it's initial steps and going back to your first question we we there is a learning process this is inevitable there's there's only so much you can do in trials no matter how long the trials are you then there is further learning that happens in actual practice and that again mm. i would say to people is normal yes uh, what happens in medicine right and i mean as far as the way that it's all <clears throat> going to be ro- sort of rolled out i'm asking the question today to people because we've had callers in the past who've complained about the fact that they haven't been able to see their elderly relatives the idea of this vaccine is to give it to uh, the care homes as soon as possible but it's not all that clear precisely when that will begin i was listening to a government minister yesterday talking to dan wooden um, and he wasn't sure precisely when actual patients would be getting it in care homes do you have any info on how that's going or, or what are you hearing i mean i've seen the i've seen the priority list from the uh, the uh, committee of vaccination immunization and obviously the people in care homes are, are the first priority and then it grades down in terms of age uh, with the healthcare workers at number two as well and then clinically what are called clinically vulnerable people uh, regardless of age at number four but the the key issue though is, is supply so mm. you can put people in priority lists but if you've only got a finite supply of the vaccine and that is the biggest determinant it's you know it's obviously supply and demand and so um it, it's really going to depend on uh how much of this particular vaccine they're able to source and yeah. whether other yeah. vaccines come on stream that are able to take up uh, some of the slack because it's i suspect there's huge demand at the moment for this particular vaccine yeah and are these particular vaccines going to be different in terms of what they do because the one that we have now currently um basically doesn't stop you getting coronavirus it just stops you getting yes. a very bad kind of uh, outbreak of it uh, it doesn't stop you spreading it and it also apparently doesn't necessarily stop you from having to self-isolate uh, if you if you are still encouraged to do that well i mean i'm hoping it will do better than that but it's a learning process now i think i i've always thought the analogy in terms of vaccination is going to be more like the flu vaccine rather than say uh, one of the childhood vaccines that uh, our, ch- you know, our children have now, which uh, are, are very effective because they're given uh, at a young age to really wipe out you know, diseases that were commonplace when we were growing up, measles, for instance. So I think this is a, a virus that is endemic and is, it actually affects people 
more later in life, when our immunities later in life become less efficient and, um, and uh, it, it's a more difficult uh, virus to actually, uh, to actually uh, recognize and, and reduce. Uh, we, we've never been able to develop a virus with a common cold, for instance, mm. of which coronaviruses make up about 20 to 30 percent of them. So I think the analogy really is more like a, a, a flu type efficacy in the, that there will, I'm hoping there should and will be some reduced transmission and reduced severity, but um, I've never thought this is going to be something that we should be hinging all our sort of future outcomes on because it's one part of, of many and the other parts are things like herd immunity through natural means and also um, just awareness of, of sensible things. So for instance, um, you know, the, the biggest issue, I think, is the, the, the disincentive or the difficulty for people to self-isolate when they have the actual virus. And that is the biggest issue, in my opinion. Mm. Um, you know, the time and the rigor in terms of self-isolation is, is too long at 14 days. And also the difficulty getting accurate testing is, is too difficult. And, and, and also there's the various financial uh, ramifications. And I think if you're able to actually... Um, encourage uh, and have good compliance to self-isolation when you actually have the virus. That, I think, is is a, a massive step forward, and we've not got that, uh, despite the many months we've, we've had this. Yeah, quite. Yeah. And as far as just what is going on around uh, the vaccine, because obviously we're still looking at data, we're still looking at figures, um, Office for National Statistics figures look as though um, the estimates that were um, quoted back in October as to why we should be going into a second lockdown uh, turn out to be wildly uh, overestimated again and twice as big as they actually turned out to be. And yet we're still hearing from uh, Downing Street, oh, it may be necessary to put London back into tier three. I mean, it seems to me that they need to stop with this nonsense, don't they? So I think if you recall, there was all, there was a great deal of um, leaking of documents and figures just before uh, the announcement. I think it was on a weekend, on a Saturday, yeah. and had been it was brought forward, and there was a few raised eyebrows even at that time. And then I, I think really virtually within forty eight hours, um, the, uh, there was um, significant concern about the figures that were put out. That they were based on old figures that had been re revised, but those re revisions weren't presented and then you've got this very sort of quietly uh, without any sort of real publicity attempted by the ONS to re revise back its figures from over a month ago so the figures going up to October the 17th I believe it is and we're now in early December and they've re revised down their figures and uh, you've got to say to yourself well what's happened uh, in that time why have they gone back what new information have they have now which they didn't have at the time it's a very significant revision down so you may recall there was uh, politicians and others going on tv saying that the virus rate is doubling and doubling within x number of days it varied between a week to two weeks mm. and hospitals mm. weren't going to be overwhelmed and now the revised figures down say well it wasn't actually doubling at all and it was actually slightly up but uh, not uh, anywhere remotely approaching that figure um, and this is part of a pattern uh, whereby uh, coming up to that second lockdown, uh, figures from other sources were, were up, but then uh, further detail comes through and they weren't actually as bad as, uh, as, as was presented. And what we get is the initial sound bites from people 
pushing the lockdown to justify it, and then quietly those figures are seen actually not to be the case after all. But the lockdown's mm -hmm. happened, and we're there where we are. And the other thing which um, I thought was really interesting was uh, Wales looking at the situation they're in at the minute, which did do the five breakouts, was advised on these uh, um, figures which uh, showed this doubling, which actually isn't the case anymore. And they're actually the, uh, the only part of Great Britain and Northern Ireland where the infection rates are actually going up now. Yes. Whereas yeah. the, other, the other parts are uh, is remaining flat. And it just shows um, just how you have to be sceptical about this yeah. device. Yeah. But also in, in, the, in the, uh, the, the, the sort of the figures that I'm seeing and, and the reports that I'm reading, which suggest that um, uh, increasing rates are, are, are in London in schools, you know, they have to surely take that into account, you know, because it's one thing to say there's increasing rates in schools and another thing to say there's increasing rates of people being hospitalised. So um, we're December. We're going to have an increased rate in London and perhaps elsewhere in January, and it'll start to even out in February and come down again. That's what happens with respiratory viruses. COVID is a respiratory virus and it will thrive in this time of year. Um, I think we are attempting the near impossible to get rid of it completely. Mm. And I think as long as our health service is coping, it, you will recall virtually every winter we get close to exhausting our beds pre-COVID. So I'm not expecting us to have mass, and we shouldn't be expecting, unfortunately, it would be great if we did, but we shouldn't be expecting to have masses of capacity. But as long as our health service is coping and able to provide care we should be providing, then I think we need to get on with our lives because we are attempting the impossible by trying to get rid of a respiratory virus in winter, which is endemic in our society. Yeah. Uh, unless we isolate ourselves in our homes throughout the next four months, and I mean isolate individually even, I don't see how it's possible. And it, it's it's... Well, clearly that's not going to happen because we're going to have people mixing at Christmas. We've already seen last weekend, you know, thousands of people out and about shopping in the middle of Regent Street. I mean, I don't understand why, if they wanted to stop people from sort of gathering in Regent Street, they made it a pedestrian precinct. Because if you can, you know, if you take all the cars away, people are going to walk there. So uh, this is one of the um, compromises you have to make in life. Um, if um, your sole purpose in life is to avoid infection, then you will live on your own indoors and never go yeah. out. Uh, but life involves taking various risks. We attribute a proportion to them and decide in our own minds whether it is worthwhile to take that risk. Uh, you know, we'll see if there is any spike of infection from um, this close contact with that shopping day, but people know and should know when they go out that they're going out, they're going out in the wide world, things can happen, but they still do it because they make an, uh, an estimate as to the pros and cons of that. And that's what we've done throughout our life and throughout previous lives and so on. But as I say, we seem to be trying something very different to that now, which I, I think is is impossible. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Dr. Wakar Rashid, consultant neurologist, MS specialist, of course, as well. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. It's true, is it not, as we watch Chris Whitty giving evidence to a parliamentary committee, that there is no point in even threatening London that it should go into tier three, just because there's been a, a, a growing of infections in schools. 
just because there's been a growing of infections in testing centres. If there's no growing of infections and if there's no increase in infections and no increase in hospital admissions, then it doesn't need to go into any sort of extra tier, doesn't it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Now, uh, what we do know uh, is that Brexit has been done, right? It's been done. Brexit got done on January the 31st. We all celebrated. Uh, There was a party in the middle of Westminster. Uh, There was a party that I went to, in fact, uh, with various people who had been key uh, to making it all happen. And yet... Boris Johnson is going over to see Ursula von der Leyen uh, later on this afternoon, possibly for dinner this evening. I don't know what's going to be on the menu. Uh, Maybe some humble pie for somebody. Um, But basically, Nigel Farage has said, if this is going to turn into some kind of partnership conversation, then that is not the act of somebody who's leaving. It's the act of somebody who's joining, isn't it? Let's talk to Professor Anand Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe, to find out what he makes of it all. Anand, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, here we are. I mean, we, you and I have had many of these conversations, right, over time. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, I'm not sure the, what the point of Boris going there today is. Um, what do you think the point of it is? Well, at its simplest, the point is that the negotiators have got as far as they can get. And they need a degree of permission from their political leaders to get a bit more wiggle room. That's mm. the same. The mandate we've got is too narrow. There is no overlap with the other side's mandate. We need our mandate to be changed so that we can have an agreement. Now, what's interesting about the meeting today is Ursula von der Leyen doesn't get to change the EU's mandate. Mm. She depends on the member states to do that. Right. So I, I think the point today is for Boris Johnson to say, this is what we need. She might take that to the European Council meeting tomorrow, try and get their mandate shifted a little bit. And on the back of that, the negotiators might be able to find a bit of common ground. Yeah, because this is what I see as a kind of a macro conversation and leaving the micro conversations to the others, right? So Michel Barnier is looking for some indication um, that there is a slight change in in direction and then they can go from there. But, but, I mean, having taken four years to get to this point, it just seems to me that there isn't really uh, any wiggle room left, is there? Well, yes and no. I mean, bear in mind we haven't. I mean, we haven't strictly speaking taken four years to get to this point because we we spent the first three three years plus dealing with the divorce issues, the withdrawal agreement. So right. this negotiations only been going on since this time last year. Right. But yeah, I think it is pretty clear that there are some fundamental differences of principle between the two sides. That being said, and unlike previous uh, Brexit deadlines, we've reached what Alex Ferguson used to call squeaky bum time. <laughs> Something has to happen this yeah. week. Otherwise, it's hard to see how a deal can be done. Well, except the EU, of course, yesterday said, um, of course, you know, if we can't reach an agreement this week, it may well be that we can extend the deadline because that's what they've always done. I mean, I mean, I've never known more deadlines to be extended. You know, if it was an analogy to football, uh, you'd have had extra time, you'd have had penalties and then you've had another extra time and you'd have some more penalties and you'd be back into the third extra time uh, thinking about penalties again. I suppose so. I mean, you know, if you want to extend the analogy, you're hoping for a golden goal this evening. Uh, I mean, I think, yes, there's a degree of flexibility. The EU, I think, might struggle legally to extend this transition phase for very long after Mm. the 31st of December. What I mean by progress this week is if von der Leyen and Boris Johnson manage to find some common ground and say, okay, in principle, we can both agree on that. They can send it back to the negotiators who will come up with something I imagine over the week, either over the weekend or early next week. I don't think a deal will be done this week, but I think the two leaders today can 
put in place conditions under which a deal could possibly be done in a few days time. Yes. And so as far as those uh, people in this country are concerned, you know, the Brexiteers who want to see no deal is better than a bad deal. um, What Mm -hmm. do you think they're going to be saying later on tonight? Do you think they're going to be happy, sad, indifferent, um, disappointed? What What are you going to predict? Well, I think you've got to bear in mind, firstly, there are different sorts of Brexiters, aren't there? Yes. There are Brexiters who want us to get no deal. There are Brexiters who actually would have been happy with a far closer economic relationship. Mm. So I think what's going to happen is people are going to look at what is agreed. And one of the interesting things, of course, is between announcements and details of what was agreed, there's always a time lag. So think back to yesterday. Uh, the UK and the EU agreed on the principles to govern the Northern Ireland Protocol in the Joint Committee. This was hailed as a success. What we haven't got yet is the details of what they've agreed. And I think there are some Brexit-supporting MPs in the Conservative Party who are keeping their eyes peeled for those details just to check that, in their opinion, the government hasn't given too much away to the EU in terms of the checks we're going to have between GB and NI. And I think something similar will happen today. Boris Johnson might come out and say he he might come out and say no agreement was possible but equally he might come out and say we've had a fruitful exchange we've got a basis for future negotiations those will be ongoing and not actually give us the details yes i mean is he in a kind of a cleft stick here because at the end of the day there are those who voted for brexit uh particularly those perhaps in the new blue wall up north uh who wanted to leave the european union more than they wanted anything else in the world they're disappointed Mm -hmm. with boris about lots of other things disappointed with his response to covid disappointed with the tier three scenario that they've been stuck in and now Mm-hmm. This is like the only chance he's got to kind of redeem himself, if you like. Um, is it not the case that if he does any kind of negotiating other than just leaving and walking away with whatever he wants to do, that's going to reflect badly on him? I'm not sure. I mean, you can spin that argument both ways, can't you? You can say on the one hand, these people just want it done. And actually, Boris Johnson walking out this evening, making doing a press conference in front of the commission building saying, I came here, I tried, they yeah. were inflexible. There's nothing more we can do. We'll go down well with some people. Yes. On the other hand, there are those even amongst the Brexiters who think that Boris Johnson should get a deal because that would make trading with the European Union easier once we're out. And will, I think, be upset if he, if he fails to get a deal. A lot of voters, I think, after the election campaign last year, thought getting a deal will be quite straightforward. And I think some of them are a little bit surprised that this hasn't been done already. Yes, I think that's probably true. And as far as the uh, the French are concerned, um, there's been a lot of sabre rattling over the last week or so uh, from Emmanuel mm-hmm. Macron over the fishing, but also over other things as well. Uh, is that all going to go? Is that all kind of, uh, you know, fire and brimstone and bluster? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you know, bear in mind the French vetoed our first ap- our first couple of applications to join the European community back in the 1960s. So they're not averse to chucking their veto about. Shame we didn't and, walk away then. <laughs> well, you know. And, uh, well, what happened was General de Gaulle left. So we had a different French president who wasn't going to veto. Right. I mean, the French changed their minds rather than us yeah. on that occasion. But, you know, he's got politics, too. President Macron needs, if he's going to sign up to a deal, he needs to sign up to a deal. He can turn around to the French people, including the people of Calais and the French fishermen, and say, this is a really good deal for you people. If he doesn't think the deal fits that, he's not going to sign it. No. And so as far as the next stage goes, I mean, obviously we all are expecting January, uh, December 31st, rather, to be sort of D-Day, if you like. Um, What do you think is going to happen in January? Because, you know, you've always been a relatively sane voice on all of this. I mean, you're one of the few people, Alan, that I think I can trust to be completely and utterly neutral, uh, of which there are very few. I think... You know, the fact of the matter is, if you're fundamentally changing your trading relations with your nearest and closest trading partner, 
there is going to be some disruption because no one can anticipate exactly what's going to happen and put the systems in place to do it. That's been made even worse by the fact that governmental and business attention has been completely distracted by COVID this year, which means that there has been less in the way of preparation than there otherwise would have been. So, yeah, there are going to be uh, shots of lorries tailing back at ports uh, in in early January. I mean, the bigger question in a way is how long that lasts. Mm. And that I don't think anyone knows. But the government has, you know, hired charter planes and the like. So there are contingency plans in place to minimise the impact it will have on us. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I think the point about how flexible and how easily uh, it is for this country to kind of adapt to whatever it is that's changed uh, will be the key, won't it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can turn that argument. You can say, if it isn't disruptive in the short term, what the hell was the point of doing it? The point was doing it was we have this very, very close relationship with the European Union that some people thought was too close and they wanted to be free of it. Well, actually, if nothing happens when we leave, it kind of begs the question, you know, what was the fuss about? Yeah, exactly right. I think that's very, very true. Professor Annan Menon, thank you very much indeed, Director of the UK uh, in a changing Europe. I think it would be kind of naive to think that, as Annan says, nothing will change at all. What I think we need to be aware of, though, uh, are people who try to make out that it's going to be a nightmare, it's going to be terrible, it's going to be devastating, there's going to be no medicine coming in, there's going to be no food coming in. That is not going to happen. Um, But there might be one or two little hiccups, and I think that's absolutely fair enough. But is there any point, really, in Boris going there today? I don't think there is, to be honest, because all I would say uh, is that I predict he walks out of the meeting and says we haven't really been able to find any major areas of agreement. He'll probably say that, yes, they've come to some agreement on Ireland, which they came to yesterday anyway. But I really don't think that he is going to come out uh, with some kind of, you know, shining light uh, to, to, uh, to produce for us to go, look at this. This is amazing, isn't it? I don't think so. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Mr. Neil Oliver. Neil, how are you doing? Hello, Mike. Yes, hanging on in there. Hanging on how in there. Do? I must admit, I actually smiled, uh, which I don't do that often these days uh, when I read your column, because there was a certain kind of um, humorous desperation about it that uh, that we all, I think, can identify with. That, you know, you wonder if you could go somewhere, anywhere, just to get the hell out of the situation that you're in. Yeah, I think never in my life before have I, have I had such an such a strong sense of the world having become a very small place mm. because there's that feeling in relation to the, the pandemic and many other matters besides that there's just nowhere to go yeah. <laughs> we, you know you think if i was going to make a run for it to some kind of uh you know some kind of um you know utopia mm-hmm. some kind of free and you know untrammeled place where the where the living was good and the and there was liberty and all the rest of it but where are you going to go right you look at you look at the world map and think no can't go there no can't go there, and so it goes on and then you think well I'm as you know really beyond the joking all joking aside you're you know you're eminently better off here, uh, for, you know for all the for all the shortcomings of the, of the moment that you know the best chance of liberty you know it's still in the free world is is here or hereabouts yes uh, but it's just it's just that feeling that kind of claustrophobia I think has has become part of has become one of my symptoms. I just feel hemmed in, yes, uh, shackled, and there and there being nowhere to there being nowhere to break free to, even if I could shrug off my bonds. Yes, because even though at least you're in your home surroundings, which is a good thing, because you're surrounded by all the things that you want and, and need and and love, 
equally, um, if you can't leave that place, which I don't think you really can at the moment in Scotland, it becomes a, a prison, doesn't it? It, it does, and it's very, I find it, uh, you learn things about your own psychology, and I think possibly just the, the psychology of the human species, how how readily we have accepted this and grown used to it. You know, it, is, it does demonstrate, I think it's a bit like, you know, people talk about when they get uh, due time in prison, you know, and they become institutionalised, yeah. and, and uh, to, to such an extent that even when they're set free, the, the freedom is difficult to take. Yeah. You, because they've become so familiar with the routine and being allowed to do certain things at a, a very specific time. And that, that structure becomes more important than freedom itself. Yeah, it's you, true. You, I, I mean, I've I, that before, thought, however, how could that ever happen? But now I think, no, I absolutely understand <laughs> why someone would, break, would get out of jail and then commit another petty crime just to get back in. Yeah, I mean, I've had conversations with my family about, you know, uh, can we go anywhere, uh, even if it was just for a little break, for a holiday of some kind. But I really don't like the idea of, of wearing a mask for such a long period of time, which involves, you know, in an airport, on a plane, at the other end of an airport, you know, seven, maybe eight hours of, of, of torture for me. I mean, I can't even stand going on a short tube journey and having to wear it, you know. So the idea of wearing it for hours on end just completely puts me off going anywhere. My, my feeling exactly. I, all, all I've been doing is because I've, I've accepted that, you know, th those are the rules. I just don't, frankly, I just don't want shouted at in the streets. Yeah. Well, no more than necessary. Um and so I've, you know, I've been, when I go to the one shop I go to, I, I put on a face covering. Yeah. Uh, my response really has been, I just don't go anywhere. Yeah. Because I don't want to, my my quest for freedom is just to only go out into the countryside. I, I just go out into the fresh air. Yeah. Where I don't have to look at people wearing masks and where I don't have to wear a mask myself. Yeah. That's as good as it gets for me. And yes, like you, the thought of going, you know, airports are torturous places anyway. Yeah. You know, there's so many, everything about them is, is, you know, is difficult, you know, security and all the rest of it. And the thought of adding on that layer of, of the mask wearing and then wearing the mask on the, no, I just won't, I just won't go. Oh. Are <laughs> you are you I'm, also seeing this kind of creeping um, change in language, which, which I'm seeing now, where people will say things like, and I try and pick them up on it, you can't always do it, but when they say things like, oh, I don't know if we're allowed to do that, or... I think oh. we're allowed to do that. Or can we do this? You know, and it's like, just do what you want to do, man. I know the, the principle has always been, the principle enshrined in, in common law is that you're allowed to do everything and anything unless it's specifically prohibited by an existing law. Yeah. But, but it's gone the other way. And how quickly it has gone the other way that people are now assuming that they're not allowed to do anything unless there's a specific line in the regulations that says they can. Yeah. So I, I find myself in these conversations, we talk about Christmas coming up. It's inevitable for now. People are talking about Christmas and people are punctuating and peppering their comments with, well, we'll see if we're allowed to do that. Yeah. And, and we'll see, we'll see if I can have my mother-in-law over. Yeah. We're assuming we can, but we'll, we'll find out if that's permitted. Yes. And that has turned everyone's understanding of freedom and what they're allowed to do has swung through 180 degrees. And now people are assuming that they're not allowed to do anything mm. unless they're specifically told they can. Yeah. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? Because you would never... I mean, I thought about this last night because um, I haven't used the tube and I don't use the tube very often, but I was going out. Uh, so I had. I decided I was going to take the tube. 
And I got off the train and I walked along a platform and it suddenly just struck me. Here are all these people wearing masks. There's quite a lot of them. Um, and it was horrible. And, you know, I don't see that a lot because I tend not to go on public transport. I mean, I'm in the street and people are wearing masks. It doesn't seem to be such a such a, a, a noticeable thing. But on the tube when everyone's wearing them and they're all staring into their phones or they're, you know, not looking at each other. It's just really horrible. Yes, it's the it's the last act of isolation. Mm. I think uh, you know there's there's a feeling that um, with that every possible uh, step has been taken to isolate us one from another. Yeah. At, at a time of great uh, anxiety, when when the natural instinct is to is to be with people and to be comforted by our fellow human beings because we are social creatures. Every last avenue to doing that has been has been blocked off, so that you know you can't go to the pub, you can't go out for a meal, uh, you can't go to a gig, you, you know you well you haven't been able to go to a football match, you can't go to the theatre, all you can't go to one another's houses, and then finally you can't actually even look at one another's faces. Yeah, it, it's it's Kafka esque almost in in the in I think the horror of it. And I don't shirk from using that word. It's one thing to to endure certain uh, restrictions, but I maintain the urge and the need to to say this is horrible. Yeah. No. I, I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't mentally decide that wearing a mask in amongst an entire masked population is anything but horrible. Yeah. I ref- I absolutely refuse. It's my it remains my right to refuse my consent. I don't have to consent. I can. I, I don't have to accept that this is a good thing. Mm. And one of the most troubling elements for me throughout has been the extent to which it's the, the religiosity of it and the cultishness of it, where it's it's not enough to be seen to obey. You have to be seen to be celebrating yes. what we're having. Oh, you have to be you have to be enthusiastic about it. You get these people going. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with just wearing a mask if it saves lives? Well, first of all. We have no idea if it saves lives anyway. And two, this, it's horrible. You know, how can you even want to do it? My, my wife's been invited to one of these. It's, it's, often, it's around Christmas and, and there's a group of, of, of folk locally are, they've all bought a, a, a Christmas decoration for one another, like right. a secret Santa thing. Yeah, yeah. But they're going to enact it via a, a Zoom call. Right. And I just find it, the thought of it, absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. It's the idea of all these women, you know, sat on their own somewhere with a with a glass of, you know, with a glass of fizz, right? And the little parcel that they've been sent, and they're all going to open it and 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 pretend to share this experience yeah. on screen, right? And it's the best that people can do, and people are trying to, in inverted commas, make the best of it. Mustn't grumble, yeah. And I, I hear that that this is what's what's been planned for, a, for a, in a day or two's time it just makes me want to weep I know at, at the tragic nature of it and yet and yet people are supposed to say well, hey this is great yeah. you know, technology is taking up the slack yeah. and we can well this is it I mean you, you, you and I have both kind of declared ourselves to be relatively um, um, shall we say unenthusiastic about being ordered around and, and we don't like being told what to do. My mother, who is a, 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 a survivor of what you and I have talked about before, the Clyde Bank bombings in the Second World War, running in and out of air raid shelters at the age of 16 or 17, 
declared uh, at the weekend when I was talking to her on the phone that she didn't want the vaccine. She's going to give it to my, my sister instead because she's like, I'm 96, I don't really care, I don't want it. Um, I put out a tweet to that effect. You would not believe the number of people who were critical of her for saying that. And I'm like, oh, she's 96 be- years of age, for Christ's sake. Oh, I would believe. That's the point. It's, it's every, every, all of these uh, little inhumanities we're supposed it's it, it's it's uh, it, it's required that we smile in in receipt of them. Yeah, that's the bit I find really really difficult. And if you you know your your mum there has has voiced has, has done something that's being perceived as an, an act of ingratitude. You know, here's this you know here's this vaccine and and, and not and not receiving it with open arms has has brought the you know, the retribution of those that are inclined to, you know, to, to voice that kind of criticism. But when you say that, I knew that had happened. I, I saw you, you know, comment about it yeah, earlier. Right. And I thought, yes, absolutely. I can see that. The thing, what's really, what I think is really troubling at the moment, but even more troubling, is with the advent of the of the vaccine, and there, was, there was this notional talk that light at the end of the tunnel yeah, yeah. and going to get back to normal. Uh, but, but with the next breath, it was being said that the, the lady who had been the first in history to receive the vaccine, it wasn't going to protect her necessarily from getting the, the right. virus. It wouldn't necessarily stop her uh, passing it to right. others. And even though she'd been vaccinated, if, if she tested positive, you know, you'd still have to self-isolate in the usual way. And in my unscientific way, I thought, well, what, what exactly what difference is it right. making there? And well, I, exactly. I feel as if, I feel as if it's it's like in the you know in the early, they say that one of the uh, Paul Fussell wrote a book about the Great War and, and modern memory about irony being one of the, the the artifacts that was left behind by the experience of the First World War because the idea being that however bad you thought things were they were about to get worse and you just didn't know it <laughs> right. and that kind of ironic sense began to permeate through poetry and through movies yeah. ever after Catch Twenty Two and all the rest of it are all products of that sense of irony. And I feel that we haven't we haven't seen the half of it. No. You know, by, by the November of 1914, France was a million casualties down, with four years of the war still to go. Right. And you can imagine how people felt in France. They'd lost a million men. Surely this is the this is as bad as it could possibly be. Yes. Worse than anyone could have imagined. But no, it was about to drag on for four times as long as it already had. And you know. And everything was going to become even more unimaginably terrible. Yeah. And my, my my sense of dread, I almost feel as though I'm I'm going through a stage of grieving for the world of of, of before mm. and life of before because nothing is persuading me at the moment that it's anything but dead and buried. Yeah. Because and I keep, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I mean, I'm I am a sort of eternal optimist, and I keep expecting some light to go off in the heads of the people running the country to say to them, look, whatever it is that we're doing here is not working. I mean, I wake up this morning to the news that they might be putting London back into Tier 3. Now, I know that you won't be very sympathetic to that because you've been effectively in Tier 3 for weeks and years and whatever. But, you know, I, the idea that, that, that this, I've, I've, I've managed to be in pubs and restaurants in the last week since they reopened, the idea that they're all going to shut them again is absolutely unbearable. And I know that people will say, well, just get over yourself, you complete idiot. But I'm sorry, you know, it's about seeing people. It's about going out. It's about actually the the joy of sitting in a restaurant and hearing noise, hearing people talking, hearing kind of the clatter of, of activity. Yeah, I mean, to me, what I've learned personally, this is what I think, public health is not my number one priority. 
I'll, I'll say that. I, I appreciate it's important, but mm. I, I don't make it number one so that everything else has to be sacrificed on the altar of it. Right. What I've seen over the last few months, the damage that's been done, and so much of the damage, as we have said before, is invisible at the moment because you know, people are being encouraged to look the other way. You don't look at the people who are suicidal. Don't look at the people who've lost everything or who are about to lose everything yeah. and become homeless and destitute and all the rest of it. Look at the fact that we've got a vaccine. Look at the fact that there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we're, we're, we're being sort of uh, shepherded through and, and, and encouraged not to look at the, at, the, at the terrible things that we know are, are out there and have happened. Right. And I feel uh, we're not, we're not realising that this is a situation that is just going to go on. Yeah. Because, because the powers that we have seen and we have shown them that, that we will put up with anything, we will, we will do anything yeah. that, we're, that, we're, that we're encouraged to do in this climate of fear. Uh, and, you know, I, I saw somebody, somebody was writing about the fact that it would be masks all of next year. All of next year. And it was Patrick Valance, I think, was yeah. saying that your population would likely have to remain masked for the whole of next year. And that fills me with existential dread. I know, I know. But this is now where we. This is it. This is this is what life looks like now. And yes, you. We try to be optimistic, and you. And, but I think the expression of that optimism is in a stubborn refusal to accept that this is normal. I will not. I'll. You know. I'll. You know. I'll. I'll go along with the with the with the group up to a point, but I will not consent. At no point will I say that this is acceptable because to me it's not. It's really not. And also, I mean, people like Valence, unfortunately, have got, in my view, far too much kind of uh, power now in this particular matrix because we believe them or people believe them, and certainly the politicians believe them. You know, he's probably a guy who would have told you 10 years ago, you know, it'd be a really good idea to wear a mask when you're out and about in Glasgow or London or Leeds or Manchester or Sheffield because, you know, uh, the, the, the atmosphere might not be very good for your lungs. These are the kind of people who would have you wearing a mask anyway. And I think it's absolutely outrageous that they're trying to make it normal because it isn't normal, whatever they say. No, and I, I want, to, well, do I? Yes, I, I, I want the, the spotlight turned on the people that we're not hearing from. Of course, people like Patrick Valance and, and the rest of the, the scientists that are you know working around the clock and they're busy interacting with their colleagues and they've got an objective and a, and a purpose to life and they're being paid and all of that is still going on for them. Likewise, the politicians, likewise so many of the celebrity figures that are you know loudly endorsing all and you know cheerleading and you know you know pretending that there's this kind of blitz spirit about right. it. But we're not hearing from the broken people. And we know, or and if you don't know, I, I don't know how you can have avoided it, that there are millions of people, millions of people whose lives have been desperately affected by this. Oh, for sure. And we're not hearing from them. And because we're not looking at them and we're not hearing from them, we're being encouraged to think that, well, we're all in it together and these are the necessary steps that have to be taken to get the population through this pandemic. Yeah. And yeah. that's all well and good while you pretend that the other things aren't happening. But I can't because I hear about it and I see it and I know it instinctively mm. that, the, you know, the population's mental health, uh, you know, is being battered and pummeled. And just because you're not seeing those people who are being destroyed by this doesn't mean they're not out there. No, of course. And let's not forget, Neil, that this all began in March. We all walked out of a bar, I think, for the last time, as far as we knew, um, in March, sometime like the 19th or the 18th or something, 
thinking we were going to have a month of, of some restrictions of one kind or another that we wouldn't really be able to do that again for a while. A month. That was what we thought. You know, that was like nearly a year ago. Uh, you know? There's no, there's no end. I just don't believe there is an end in sight. This is mm. what I mean about the, you know, I, I feel as if, I mentioned, I said last week, you know, as if we're in episode one, season one of, a, of the pandemic box set. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, it's already apparent that the vaccine is not going to be the great key that unlocks the gates that have kept us in. That's already been, uh, we're already being encouraged to pour some cold water on that. We're all going to get it. You know, you'll have to get the, you'll have to get the vaccine right. if you want to do anything in the future. Uh, but it's not going to take away the masks and it's not going to take away the, the constant sort of Damocles prospect right. of lockdowns that are going to destroy one business after another. And, you know, the, the powers that be have, have satisfied themselves that this is a model that works for them. Yeah. They can pass the laws, they can get the compliance, and they remain paid. You know, they're, they're functioning normally. And they, they've, they've performed a triage on those that, you know, the drowned and the saved. And there are people out there, a section of the population out there who are, who are just, are just going to have to drown. I know. And, and, and I, of course, I, watching, I, people, I, watching people like Nicholas Sturgeon, as we saw this week, of more or less warning off the royal couple, William and, and Kate, from coming to Scotland and, and being quite sort of tight-lipped about it and being quite sort of matter-of-fact about it, as if she, in fact, is now running the country, you know? Well, that's a situation that could have and should have been avoided. Uh, if I was running Kensington Palace PR, uh, there was no way that I would have allowed that that goodwill tour, that whistle-stop tour of giving thanks, unless absolutely everyone, every step of the way, was publicly seen to be on song with it. Mm. And if there was was any suggestion that anyone was going to use it for any kind of political gain or to score points, then, uh, uh, you know, no, I would not have allowed. It. I wouldn't have allowed that to go ahead because it, it, it was left as a as an open goal, or a you know it was a mine onto which you know the hapless William and Kate you know were invited to step. It just should, that situation could have and should have been avoided, and the, and the fact that it, it has in Scotland and in Wales been used for you know political you know political advantage and, and to score and to score another small point. How how anyone? It, it never ceases to amaze me that, that Downing Street and the Palace and all the rest of it couldn't have foreseen that mm. and have you know decided on a separate course of action. To, to, what's the gain? It's, it's just another way in which that you know the royal family have been have been seen mm. apparently to get the mood of the country wrong. Yeah, done the wrong thing in Scotland and they've done the wrong thing in Wales. To whose benefit is that? Right, because the mood of the country now apparently is at the whim of the first minister. She will tell you what the mood of the country is. She will tell you what the uh, plan is for the country, and she will tell you exactly how to think about that. Oh well, as I've said, as I've said before, uh, you know, ad nauseum, it's always important to remember that the first minister and, and the SNP speak for you know that's it's the SNP, <laughs> and uh, you, anyone anyone anywhere, it's regardless of it means Scotland or Wales or you, you, to say that you speak for the entire population is is just hubristic. You can't. She doesn't, and, and nor could anyone else. When we know that the, the countries are so split the way they are, so polarised, so divided, mm. Britain's divided, you know, Scotland's divided. I, I don't know, I can't really speak to, you know, what the political situation is in Wales, and it would be, you know, unwise. I'm not going to get involved in that. Um, but these are split 
populations diametrically opposed and, and split along a kind of a 50-50 line. Uh, and, for, and for anyone to presume to say that they speak for the nation, mm. that, that's a mistake because, you know, the, the First Minister does not. She, she speaks for the people who agree with her, yeah. who, are a, who are a percentage of the population. And it's as simple as that. Neil, great to talk to you again. Thank you. And uh, stay strong, I think, is probably the best thing I can say to you. We're all in it together in in the sense that at least uh, those of us who are not enjoying it and who are not willing to put up with it uh, can continue to complain uh, and can continue uh, to react against it because we are not going to put up with this forever. Um, We shouldn't have to. Um, We're not going to. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, let us say a very good afternoon to Anthony Worrell Thompson, uh, the restaurateur, the chef, uh, the man who we were talking about only yesterday. This is how efficient the team is here uh, at Talk Radio. Uh, a listener called in and said we should really talk to Anthony about his fishing documentary that went out, I think, last year. Anthony, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Afternoon, Mike. I'm happy very, to be here. Very nice to speak to you. I mean, you and I spoke many years ago, I think, um, about all manner of different things. I can't really remember what it was, but but I'm delighted to have you back on. We had a listener call in yesterday because we were talking about the whole uh, fishing business of Britain and how it's been allowed to kind of fall into rack and ruin. And obviously, it's a big subject at the moment because of Brexit. And so before we do anything else, let's let's talk a little bit about the show that you did, um, which was, uh, I think, last year, Trawlham and Celebs at Sea. Um, tell us yeah. a bit about that. Well, it was uh, it was a tough because I'm, I'm being an old pensioner. They took the mickey out of me. <laughs> I said, "We got to treat you really gently," and I I whacked the skipper and said, "Don't ever mention my age again." But <laughs> I mean, I have to say, when you see a piece of fish in the fishmonger or on the supermarket shelves now, <laughs> I give it a lot more respect. I mean, they work unbelievably hard, and we had to work unbelievably hard. In ten days, I think I got thirty three hours sleep. Right. Uh, we had to gut 2,000 uh, kilos of fish wow. every haul. That was four to five hauls a day. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I mean, I'm a his own type of character. I just, I don't take any nonsense from anyone. I just get on with it. And uh, I, love, I love doing it. And I really actually missed it. Uh, I didn't get seasick, unlike my other two celebs. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, I got stuck in the old galley and made them some really nice, nice food. Yeah, I mean, it must have been pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? Because whenever I, I mean, whenever I've been on boats, generally speaking, it's been in real, relatively nice weather, but presumably around the British Isles, and that's not the case. Yeah, we were out of Macduff up in Scotland, and then we went uh, to the North Atlantic Shelf and uh, looking for lots of monkfish and all things like that. It, there was some rough. We got up to uh, a force eight, um, wow. which is quite steep. I think I was excited. I was like being on the roller coaster. I really quite. In, wanted a 10 and everyone else was saying you must be absolutely mad but I, I just want, I love the experience I love pushing myself to the limit and um, I, I sort of won them over uh, you know because they, there they are seeing a 68 year old man um, <laughs> doing a 30 year old man's job yes. and uh, I, I just I had a ball really um, and they were such a great gang of Alan the skipper he was brilliant and um, his team Jamie and is the first mate, and there was mm. a small team. Uh, and remember, they're usually a team of six, and then we had six of us on board: three, three camera people, and three of us. So it was a tight, it was a tight fit, definitely. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, one of the things that we hear all the time is that because of the the, the demand in Europe for our fish. 
you know, we've sort of allowed the uh, the fishing of our own waters to, to disappear. And uh, instead of having many, many craft and many, many fishing boats going out of the UK any, any longer, it's very much diminished. And people say that's partly because we don't eat most of the fish that is in the North Sea uh, or is, is around these islands. Is that is that the case? And, and could we change that? Well, uh, the, we could change it, undoubtedly. But we, we've got to remember there is, I mean with or without a deal, there is a big export market. I mean, the French love all our fish, um, and the Spanish come come and get our fish. You know, the lungestine, the scallops, and all those things around Scot- the Scottish waters. are It's the best fish in the world. Cold water fish is the best fish in the world. And that's why I think Macron is digging his heels in, because mm. he can see us sort of um, stopping, and, stopping them fishing. Um, we don't eat enough fish, there's no doubt about it. You know, you see... I've got a house in Spain, you, you go to their markets, the price of fish is really high, but everyone's queuing up for it. Yeah. All we're interested in is cod, haddock, a bit of place, salmon, whatever. Mm. We, we need to be a little bit more adventurous in our tastes on fish, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think we seem to be more adventurous as, as food um, sort of connoisseurs now than we used to be. I, remember, I seem to remember you had a restaurant not a million miles from where we are at London Bridge, uh, did you not, in Tooley Street a few years ago? Yeah, I did, and, yeah. And yeah. I used to go to that because I used to work for the Express around the corner. Um, and um, I don't think you've got any restaurants at the moment, but, I mean, the restaurant business in, in London has exploded so much over the last few years. But you do worry now that with COVID and all the hospitality rest- restrictions and everything, it's going to be a very tough business to be in. It is. I mean, I've got, I still do have two restaurants. I'm, my playground's the Greyhound near Henley on Thames, and I've also got Grill Off the Green in, in Kew. So okay. I'm still still in the business. But I was eating out in London last night, and um, incredibly quiet, and yeah. especially the centre. I mean, there are, there's, there's been enormous amounts of casualties, um, and there's probably going to be more. Mm. It is a, it's, a, it's a tough business. Yeah, we are more adventurous. We tend to let chefs cook our fish for us. We're not very keen on cooking fish at home. Right. Uh, there's that historic sort of um, memory of the cat's fish boiling away, stinking the house out <laughs> when I was very young. Yeah. And I think people think fish smells, but actually good fresh fish does, doesn't smell. No. And uh, it's a good old thing. You've got supper on the table in 10 minutes if you've got a fillet of fish. And I don't know why more people don't eat it. Yeah, I think it's a great thing to barbecue as well in the summer. Yeah, brilliant. Especially in oily fish, mackerel, salmon, those sort of things. They go really well on the barbecue. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the the, the way that the, the sort of the hospitality business is being treated at the moment, do you think the government could be doing more uh, for people who run restaurants? Oh yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, to be fair, um, oh, Richie has, has given us a big hand at the beginning, but it's gone a bit flat recently. Mm. I mean, there's the, you know they're talking about maybe London being tier three next week. Uh, will they get any more handouts? I mean, to keep this industry alive. They definitely need supporters. I mean, in, you know, there are uh, um, surveys that say only 2 to 5% of COVID cases are caused from the hospitality yeah. industry. Yeah. And really, when you look at the amount of people who are crammed into shops in the high streets and whatever, you think there's far more danger there than there is going into a restaurant. Oh, I know. Where, ev- where everyone, all the tables are well-spaced, the waiters are all wearing masks, you have to wear a mask when you walk to the loo or whatever. It's it's a very safe environment, and I can't understand why they're sort of making a sort of us the scapegoats, really, because it's it's not it's not us that's causing the problem. 
No, I think that's absolutely right. And are you seeing, like, for example, in the last week, uh, now that things have been open, because I've been out a couple of times since um, the, the lockdown was lifted, and it feels like it's a bit busier than it was, you know, before the lockdown, if you like. I, I tend to think we've got a bit blasé about it, and we're, we're, we're rather ignoring the second lockdown the, yeah. the, and, the, and the tier system now. Yeah. I think everyone's thinking... I can get on with. I've got to get on with it, um, and it's not the, the figures any good. But um, first lockdown, everyone it was totally new. Everyone was paying attention to the rules and walking on the other side of the road when you saw someone coming towards yeah. you. Not, none of that's happening anymore, mm. uh, and hence the figures are going up and up. But uh, you know, the restaurants are busier, except for the, I, my mind, the centre of London is very quiet. But um, in the suburbs, you know, people are working from home. They, they're going out to restaurants because they know they can get up late in the morning so they don't have to get on that six o'clock train. <laughs> uh, yes, very true. I mean, the, the yeah. benefits of working from home. Well, it's great to talk to you, Anthony. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I didn't realise you still you. had the place in queue. I may have to go and visit it at some point in, uh, soon. Uh, hopefully, if it remains open. Thank you very much indeed. Anthony Worrell-Thompson there uh, talking yeah. to us about the fishing uh, scenario and also, of course, uh, about the hospitality business, which, while it's still incredibly hanging in there uh, it's very dif- difficult for an awful lot of people of course who are still um, out in tier three the word is that london might go back into tier three uh, in the coming week i hope for heaven's sake that that doesn't happen and i know that that may sound a bit of a bit self-centered and a bit selfish but you know i mean there is absolutely no reason from what i can see from the figures uh, that, the, that the increase in numbers is anything other than uh, in schools for heaven's sake. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.